The first section is just a couple of verses from 1 Timothy chapter 4. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourselves wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. And then the next little section is from 2 Timothy chapter 4. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The second Bible reading is taken from Joshua, chapter 20 and verses 1 to 7. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When he flees to one of these cities, he is to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state his case before the elders of that city. Then they are to admit him into their city and give him a place to live with them. If the avenger of blood pursues him, they must not surrender the one accused, because he killed his neighbour unintentionally and without malice aforethought. He is to stay in that city until he has stood trial before the assembly and tell the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then he may go back to his own home in the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. So let's go back to Joshua and the, the cities of refuge that were set up to, to break the cycle of for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which was so prevalent in the time of Israel. Um, these cities were set up for that purpose. Now, as I said earlier, the, the writer of, of that, that verse, called himself sometimes the teacher, sometimes the preacher, sometimes the philosopher. Well, I'm not any of those things, so I'm going to tell you a story. And it comes from the, uh, the beginning of the second book of Samuel. The first book of Samuel, I'm sure you'll all remember, was, uh, starts with Samuel being appointed as a, as a priest, a boy priest in the church, and he carried on and became the leader of the people of Israel. And uh, against his will, the, he eventually appointed Saul as the first king because the people clamoured for a king to lead them, like the other nations, they said. So um, Samuel, uh, Samuel eventually appointed Saul as the king of Israel, and he was a good king to start with. For many years, he did a good job. He did what the people wanted, and he led them into battle, and uh, he was a, a good and just king. But uh, towards the end of his life, things started to go wrong. He started to disobey what he knew to be God's will. And uh, Samuel appointed David, remember, to, to be the king. And Saul didn't know about this to start with. 
Um, but Saul soon got to, knew, to know David when he beat Goliath, and you all know that story. Um, to begin with, it was wonderful, and then Saul began to get very jealous of David and chased him all over the place. Um, and the, the first book of Samuel ends with uh, Saul and his son Jonathan being killed in battle. So we take up the story in the second book, and after the period of, of mourning, David took up residence in Hebron, which you'll remember was one of the cities of refuge. And uh, David had with him a a motley crew. They started off as a motley crew of people who didn't know what else to do. And while David was was fleeing from Saul, they came and joined him. And there were about 400 in all. And they came with him, and David took up residence in Hebron. And uh, the people of Judah came to, uh, to David and said, Look, we know Samuel appointed you to be king of Israel. Well, will you start by being king of Judah? And David agreed. Now Judah is the the biggest, or was the biggest of the tribes of Israel in the southern part of Israel. So David became king there. But in the north it was different because King Saul had another son called Ishbosheth. Difficult one to say when you're up here. Ishbosheth. And um, he was in further north, in the northern tribes. And uh, Uh, King Saul had had a general that he called Abner, or his name was Abner, and uh, he didn't want to become subject to David. He thought, I don't don't want to go down to Judah, I'm going to appoint you, Ishbosheth, as king up here. And David had a general called Joab, who uh, led his army. And so we've got a, a recipe for civil war here. We have We've got two kings, Ishbosheth in the north and David in the south. We've got two generals, Abner in the north and Joab in the south, and two armies. And as I say, it was a recipe for civil war. And uh, they kept apart for a while, but eventually they had to come together, and they came together on the borders of Judah and the rest of the tribes round a small lake, and there were the two armies eyeing each other. And uh, Abner sent a message to Joab and said, look, don't really want to fight, but I bet 12 of my men can beat 12 of your men. So Joab said, um, okay, well, we'll try. And they both picked 12 men and they set two, but it was a bit inconclusive because all 24 of them died. So it was, um, life was cheap in those days. And then it says that a furious battle ensued. Both the armies started fighting for all their worth. And towards the end of the day, David's army, which was much more disciplined than Abner's, began to win the day. And the northern Israelites began to retreat, and Joab's army were chasing after them. Now, Joab had two brothers. One of the younger ones was called Azahel. And uh, it says that he could run. He was as fleet, uh, fleet of foot as a deer. And Azahel thought, well, I can make a name for myself here if I can catch that chap Abner and kill him, my brother will promote me. So Azahel started chasing after Abner and was gaining on him. And Abner looked back and he could see Azahel was was after him. And he called back over his shoulder, he said, look, Azahel, I don't want to harm you, stop chasing me. Otherwise I shall have to protect myself. But Azahel was, he wasn't going to stop. 
And he kept chasing after Abner, and he was just about to raise his sword and strike him down. And Abner looked back and said, you're still after me. And he turned his spear around and went like that. And it went straight into Azahel, and he died. And uh, there was a, a sudden silence. The people of, of uh, Joab's army stopped. What's going to happen now? Joab's brother has been killed, and Abner did it. And there was a sudden fear because Joab was a great soldier and everyone was, was frightened of Joab. After this, this brief stop, they all started running again. The Israel, northern Israelites running ahead, retreating as fast as they could with uh, the people of Judah after them. And eventually they got to the top of a, a hill, or Abner did, and he looked down and there were the, David's army coming up after him. And he called down and said, for goodness sake, let's stop. Otherwise, we'll all be killed before the day is out. I'm sorry for what I did. I didn't mean it. Let's stop now. And Joab reluctantly agreed. He said, right, let's stop now. And he said to his army, right, let's go home. And the northern armies went home as well. And there was a, a, a sort of peace, a intermittent peace for, for several years. And then one day... Ishbosheth did something very stupid. That's the king in the north, if you remember. Um, he accused Abner of having an affair with one of the ladies in the court. And the lady had been a concubine of King Saul. And Abner was absolutely furious because it wasn't true. And he said, I'm finished with you, to, to Ishbosheth. He said, I'm the one that put you there. You wouldn't be there. You're nothing without me. And I'm finished with you. And Abner sent a message down to David in Hebron and said, look, uh, we know that Samuel appointed you to be king of the whole of Israel. Can I come down and help this to happen? So David invited Abner to come down to Hebron and gave him a safe passage down to Hebron and they discussed what might, how they might do this. And uh, in the end, they, they obviously reached an agreement And David said to Abner, will you go back now and get this organized at your end and I'll organize the things at this end. Now Joab had been out on a raiding party sealing the borders of Judah and he came back and he was very angry to find that uh, Abner, his enemy, had been there and had gone away scot-free. So he sent a messenger after Abner and said, look, um, we need to discuss this uh, as, as soldier to soldier. Can you come back again and we'll discuss these things, how we can do it properly. And uh, Abner came back into Hebron and he met with, uh, with Joab and they discussed what they should do, soldier to soldier. And Joab, yeah, it's a bit hot in here, isn't it? Let, let's, let's go for a walk and discuss this out in the town. So they started walking around Hebron and un- Abner didn't realise that Joab was heading towards the gate of the town. And uh, they carried on talking, and as soon as they got to the gate and took one step outside the gate of the city of refuge, Joab drew his sword, and that was the end of Abner. Just one step outside the gate of the city of refuge. Now, what's what's the connection, then, with what we've been talking about earlier today? I, I think in this church, we are very privileged to have so many young people and children here with us. And they're now in the Sunday club. And so many leaders as well. 
And this church is like a, a refuge to them. In fact, your home in the first place is like a refuge to all our children and young people. You're the ones that can guide them and protect them. And while they're with you, they have you as, as refuge. And the same in the church here. We, we have a legal duty to protect them. And, and we have a loving and moral duty to look after them and teach them. So while they're here, they have this, this refuge. But what happens to our young people when they go out into the world, when they go out to college and university and out to work, when they are away from the refuge that they had as children? We hear so much these days of uh, beware of the first step in the wrong direction. It's the most dangerous time for children and young people. Even in the mundane things like uh, alcohol uh, consumption, which for some can lead to binge drinking and does so often, we hear. And the, the, um, the, content, the um, effects of, of uh, alcohol on the body if you have too much. And smoking, which leads to addiction and, and lots of medical problems. Uh, and drugs, these are all available to young people these days. And it staggers me how much our, our grandchildren know about drugs. They know who has them, they know who takes them, they know how to get them. And our constant prayer is that our grandchildren, and I'm sure you do the same for your children and grandchildren, that uh, they will not be tempted to go down those routes. Because uh, apparently last year, one in five young people took illicit drugs, some with horrific results. And it all starts with the one step, the one experiment, and um, Mark, who does our prayer diary every month, and thank you, Mark, for, for the way you produce that, that prayer diary every month for us. And uh, at the end of February, you picked up this point to pray for our young people when they go to university and to college. But much more devastating than those physical things is the loss of young people to the church, the loss of faith when, when they leave home. And uh, this, again, is... is uh, well documented. Um, when they get to college, the, the taunts that they can have, you don't believe that rubbish still, do you? Yeah, come and try this, it's much more interesting. And the forecast I, I read recently for the Anglican community in the UK is that if current trends continue, within a few decades, the older members of the church will die off and there are not enough young people replacing them. Now, this all sounds terribly depressing, doesn't it? But uh, 3,000 years ago, Elijah thought the same, thought the same thing. He, he was around a few years after Joshua. And he thought he was the only one left worshipping God. And he asked God to take his life away. And God had to show him. In fact, there were several thousands, thousands of, of people who still worshipped God. But because of the wickedness of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, you've, you've heard of them, um, most of them kept their heads down a bit. But they were there, and God proved to Elijah that he wasn't the only one. And despite all the problems in this country, I can't believe that God would let his church die, as the, the Anglicans were predicting. On Songs of Praise recently, the Archbishop of York, John Sentamu, um, was talking about a pilgrimage that he has done around um, Yorkshire and how the churches, at least in Yorkshire, are very much alive and well. And uh, he confirmed that the church is not dead in Yorkshire and is not going to die. 
And if you watch Songs of Praise on a Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, you'll see many, many lively, happy churches um, singing their Songs of Praise. Now, Mary Berry's program. Now, I don't actually, as Jessica knows, I don't enjoy cooking programs, food programs. But um, Mary Berry's program was very different recently over Easter. She was talking about foods that are prepared all around different parts of the world and connecting foods to the, um, the Easter story, the reason some of these foods are produced. And here was this program, watched by millions, I believe, with the Easter story coming out loud and clear through Mary Berry. And uh, we thank God for, for her and for her faith. In the national paper recently that we read, um, there was the best summary of the Easter story that I have seen in the national press for many a year. And it was on the editorial page, um, which most people would read, people that wouldn't dream of perhaps going to church. But there he was on, on, Easter, on Good Friday, Easter Saturday and Easter Monday with one of the best summaries of the Easter story that you could hope to see. I thought that was great. That Here was the editor of, uh, of a national paper speaking in a way that is very difficult for, for most of us to do. He had this opportunity and he grasped it. Um, and in the same national paper uh, recently, there were uh, uh, stories of, of young students, lots of students, with increasing numbers was the word they, they used, increasing numbers of students actually going to our um, cathedrals and our big churches for um, Evensong. It's almost as if there's a, a reversal of, of the trend that was, that they're going to Evensong to find the, the peace and assurance that those services give. And perhaps the Holy Spirit is enabling Christian students now to reverse the trend and say, you, know, you come and try this. Just come and see what it's like. As David said in um, Psalm 34, he said, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who find refuge in him. And maybe our students are beginning to find a refuge in the peace and quiet of Evensong. And of course it's always been tradition for our churches, um, especially during the dark ages when um, the law uh, was a bit shaky and you could never be sure what the law was, was going to decide if, if you'd um, transgressed in some way. But the churches provided a sanctuary as the way that the cities of refuge did. Churches in this country could provide sanctuary for people who could get there. And we were actually, I was talking to Paul and Marion Bishop just a couple of days ago. They send their good wishes, by the way, to those who remember them. And for those who don't, Paul and Marion were, or Paul was our minister here about 40, 45 years ago. And he sends best wishes to all of you. Um, he wanted to know what I was talking about, so I told him what I was going to try and talk about. And he said, told me the story that in, at Durham University, uh, sorry, at Durham Cathedral, there's a, a knocker on the door, and this, the tradition is that if someone who is accused of a crime can get there and get hold of the door knocker, then he has to be tried by the ecclesiastical court rather than the rather harsh um, secular courts. 
Although Paul did add that sometimes, according to the crime that you committed, sometimes the ecclesiastical court could be more harsh than the, the secular one. But that is uh, the sanctuary that was provided by the church there. Now, we've been talking mainly about younger people. What about older people, those who are just past middle age? In our house group, about a third of the members came to faith in later years. Uh, Not as as children, as as a lot that we've been showing here, but in later years. And it's encouraging that uh, God is still working amongst us. And they told us recently the difference that it made in their lives. Now, the philosopher that we've been talking about, he remembers older people as well. And our headmaster, my old headmaster, when he quoted the, the verse that's up there, he would also well, he'd say, remember your creator in the days of your youth, while the evil days come not and the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Now, I knew what that bit meant, but I hadn't a clue what the second bit meant. Um, and until I started reading a bit more about it. Um, that, of course, was the King James Version of it, because in those days we only had the King James Bible, we didn't have all the modern versions. But in the, the verses that follow that first one, the writer exclaims why, explains why it's important for youth to remember their creator because of what happens in later life. And he says, your arms grow weak. Your arms that used to protect you, they grow weak. Um, And your legs that used to take you everywhere grow shaky. I know this morning what what he meant. Um, He says, your teeth fall out and you can't chew your food. Your eyes grow dim and you can't read. And hearing becomes very difficult. And I, I know that one too. And your hair turns white. No comment on that one. But then in verse 13 of that chapter, in fact, it's the last verse in the whole of of the, the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher says, whatever age we are, worship God because that is what we were created for. But it always seems in in the Old Testament that worshiping God was a bit of a duty, not necessarily spontaneous. It was something that you had to do. Um, after all, the, the first commandment is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and so on. And it's the greatest commandment as confirmed by Jesus. But Jesus, of course, took issue with the Pharisees and the leaders that they didn't do it through love. They did it as a matter of duty and formality. But then we come to the Apostle John. Now, he, he must have been... He must have had a photographic memory for a start because when you read the Gospel of John, the words that he quoted of Jesus, there are chapters of wonderful words that that he remembered Jesus saying or the Holy Spirit brought to his mind. And um, he also used some of that same material. Now we assume that the letters of John at the end of the Bible, the two letters of John to the early church, um, were by the same person. At least he's used the same material. And I think... Most scholars agree that it was the same person that wrote the gospel as wrote the letters at the end. And and John then picks up in his letter to the early Christian community, he said, we do love God, but why? Why do we love God? And John then gives the answer. He says, this is in 1 John 4, verse 19. 
We love God because he first loved us. And that is such a different concept. Not that you have to, but we love God because he first loved us. And this brings us back to the theologian I was telling the the children about. Karl Barth was his name. He lived from 1886 to 1968. So he was 82 when he died. A good long life. And he spent all of that life um, studying because he wanted to know the most he could about God and about the church. So he said the most important thing that he had learned in his lifetime of studies was that Jesus loved him. And that's a message for the whole community and it's a message for us that our creator and I find this amazing an amazing concept, an amazing thought our creator actually loves us and in this uncertain and dangerous world that we live in now, no matter what our age, that surely is the most secure refuge we could ever have that our creator loves us personally